Before we begin this episode of the Modern Law Library, I want to make a quick note. For this episode, our guest Mike Chase was joining us by cell phone, resulting in a few connection problems. We've done our best to clean up the audio and provide you with the best listening experience we could manage. While the audio quality sometimes falls below our usual standards, we expect you'll enjoy the show. Mike's a great guest. And with that, on with this episode of the Modern Law Library. This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Mike Chase, author of How to Become a Federal Criminal, an illustrated handbook for the aspiring offender. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Mike, the first time that we at the ABA Journal became aware of your work, it was through your Twitter account, Crime A Day, which we nominated for our Web 100 last year. Could you tell my listeners just a little bit about the Twitter account, Crime A Day, how you came to develop it, and what your experience has been with it so far? Sure. So by day, I'm a white collar criminal defense lawyer. I spend a lot of time with federal statutes and regulations. And I learned that in the 80s, the Department of Justice had tried to count all the federal crimes on the books and had been unsuccessful. So I said, well, I'll give it a shot, but I'm busy, so I'll just count one a day. And so for the last five years, I've been counting one mostly ridiculous federal crime every day at at Crime a Day. And how do you find these? I often find that the crime that you have identified for a day seems to be a takeoff on a news event that's happening uh, or (laughs) that someone may be violating, or sometimes it's just something that seems truly ridiculous, like importing a pregnant polar bear. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about how you find these? Well, so first off, I'll say that nobody currently in current affairs is accused of importing any pregnant polar bears, and I would never accuse anybody of doing such a heinous thing. But yes, what I tend to do is I try to show that for virtually every major news story, there is a federal statute or regulation that probably covers the conduct. And uh, I shouldn't be able to do that. That's sort of my personal view is that that's too many laws. Uh, That's not to say that a lot of these laws aren't needful and useful. Certainly, we're looking at more serious crimes like money laundering and obstruction of justice as of late. But nonetheless, the point that I'm trying to drive home is that whatever you're reading about in the news, there's a statute for that. And one of the delightful things about reading your book, How to Become a Federal Criminal, is finding out that I have already achieved this dream many times over. I think by page 11, I'd identified something. Although, obviously, we're speaking only hypothetically, Mike. Of, of course. And I'll, I'll, uh, as a criminal defense lawyer, I feel duty-bound to tell you that you do have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Uh, thank you very much. This is this is this is very important to uh, for me to know, and also any potential readers who may be swayed by your handbook. So you'd been running the Twitter for five years, crime a day, every day, another crime. Did that lead directly to this book? How did it come about? How did you decide to frame it this way? So one of the big issues is that I interact with all of my followers, and a lot of times people will respond with the same thing, which is they say, you know, this law actually sounds pretty good to me. And so what I said is, well, in 140 characters, I can't talk to you about the background and the reason for a lot of these laws. 
So, so maybe I'll expand this out into book form so we can really get into the nitty gritty. And then another question that a lot of people ask is, has anybody ever been prosecuted for these? And as you know from reading the book, I go through a number of bizarre instances from selling flamingos to uh, being annoyingly drunk on federal property. One of my favorite exchanges in the book, you talk about in 1942, I think, they there was a congressional hearing and they were talking about making it a crime to mail dentures into a state if the dentures had been made by a person not licensed to practice dentistry. And there is this exchange between two senators, one of whom is saying, seems like we're passing a lot of laws here for some very odd reasons. And I just, it's its amazing. I'm just going to read it really quickly. Senator Clark, let us suppose that a state enacted a perfectly outrageous statute. This happens to be one of the things that is on the borderline. Suppose the state of Idaho or the state of Kansas should prohibit something that was clearly outrageous. At least in the opinion of some people, states have enacted such statutes. Suppose a statute were enacted and we were called upon to write a federal statute which would make it unlawful to transport and interstate commerce what a state said was unlawful to do in its own borders. In that case, wouldn't you want to go beyond just merely the fact that the state had a law? Wouldn't you want to examine the matter before you wrote a federal statute? Senator Reid, I think not. Senator Clark, then there is a sharp divergence of view, which is the most polite cutting thing I've ever heard. As you were doing the research for this book, were there a lot of these exchanges where um, Congress or regulators really were conflicted about, should we write a law just because this particular case seems to make sense? I'll be honest with you, not as many as you'd probably like to see. Uh, the one that you just touched on is a great example of two lawmakers saying, should we really be so reckless and careless in creating things that can actually send people to prison? And I'll tell you that there are maybe a few instances. There's one I talk about at the end of the book in the Woodsy Owl statute. But there's lots of instances where these laws get passed with very, very little discussion, very little substantive discussion. We like to think that there's hearings and testimony, but not always the case. And, and in the one you just touched on, you have a lawmaker saying, I think we should really look into matters before we say somebody can lose their liberty for it. And another senator says, I'm not so sure I agree. So one of the most charming things about this book, I think, is the fact that this is an illustrated handbook. This isn't just text. You yourself also created a number of really hysterical illustrations to go along with this. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to have this be an illustrated guide? And, you know, you're a lawyer by day. Are you also a graphic artist? How did these illustrations come to be? <laughs> so my background was I was a film major before I went to law school, which, uh, you know, my parents had a lot of heartache about the first thing. And now they probably have a lot of heartache about the second thing. But in any event, I, I, I used to storyboard my films and got into this sort of line art and wanted to use it someday. And so this is a good vehicle for that. But more functionally, um, if you hold the book in your hand, you can see that it really looks like a law text. But law texts are not something that the average person is going to pick up and leaf through. And that's one of the reasons why it is now impossible for anybody to know all the things that are crimes, because nobody sits down and reads the law. So I said, how can we make law accessible? And how can we teach some folks, maybe non-lawyers, uh, maybe new lawyers, about how regulations become crimes, 
how people get prosecuted, and how this runaway problem has created this issue that a lot of people have branded over criminalization. So I wanted to make it accessible, but I also wanted to make it fun. And I never discount the value of humor in helping get your message across. And I have to say, the experience of reading the book, there may be very few more American things than immediately wanting to write a law to outlaw the thing that you've decided is wrong. But the flip side of that is I read some of these and my gut instinct is you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) And you immediately want to go out and smash a mailbox, uh, which, of course, I would never do any listeners or prosecutors who are... uh, (laughs) currently listening uh, at this moment. So how do you hope people take this book? What do you hope is the result of this? Not just telling people these are all actually federal crimes. What do you hope is the result of people reading this book? You know, I hope that with the book that it it leads people to realize that always calling for the criminal prosecution of somebody just because you disagree with them may not be a good exercise. Because if you had an investigator assigned to watch you in your daily life, (laughs) that they may be able to find uh, lesion things that that you have done. You may have put unstamped mail in a neighbor's mailbox. You may have uh, done all sorts of things. You may have been less than truthful on a government form. And for all those reasons, I think it's important to know how much of our lives are regulated. You you mentioned a minute ago, you said, as an American, there's a lot of times I read these, these laws and I say, you can't tell me what to do. And and my favorite response that I get from my followers on Crime a Day is when they say, I thought this was America. (laughs) And usually that's in response to something particularly ridiculous. But at the end of the day, it is true. I mean, we're a country where one of our founding principles is liberty. And, And yet we have so many laws that can deprive us of that liberty. There really does seem to be a tension between liberty and the rule of law in American society. I mean, we're coming up on July 4th, Independence Day. Please enjoy all fireworks responsibly, listeners. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this is this is a humorous book. This is a light book. But I think it does have some deeper themes and really does make you reflect on what we want as a country. Is that something that you think about a lot as you find these crimes and tweet them out? Yeah, it is, because obviously I see people at a very personal level, I get to know them, I get to like them quite a bit, who have been found themselves in in the criminal justice system. And so I know what kind of a toll it can take on a person, financial, emotional, and then just collateral down the road. But you're, you're right, this book is not a joke book. I mean, it can be, you could throw it in the bathroom and get a chuckle out of it. But if you really sit down and spend time with it, I think you're going to learn something, uh, no matter who you are, and you may start approaching legal issues in a new way. Here's one that I think is a good way to approach it. If you believe in the rule of law, that's totally fine. I do too. Uh, if you think that morally reprehensible, harmful wrongs should be criminally prosecuted vigorously, I, I'm with you 100%. But if you also agree that it's hard to respect the law when we throw in the same category and we're going to call one person a criminal as well as another person a criminal, when some of the more ridiculous things count as crimes, then you sort of diminish the force of the criminal sanction. I mean, at least publicly, you know, being branded a criminal and going through the rest of your life with a criminal record, that's no small thing. But we really should reserve that criminal sanction for the most serious conduct. 
And I, I don't know that you can get to the end of the book, one, without laughing, two, without learning, but three, without getting some sense of, of what I just said. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our Modern Law Library sponsors. And when we return, Mike Chase will read an excerpt from his book, How to Become a Federal Criminal. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her head note, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Mike Chase, author of How to Become a Federal Criminal. So let's go to the book. I love to have authors read a passage so that my listeners can get kind of a feel for the language. Um, The part I read was congressional testimony. So could you please read an excerpt from your book to give people kind of an idea of the language? I'd love to. And this is from a section where we talk about sort of all of the miscellaneous ways that you can become a federal criminal. And I start to talk about some of the more arcane and bizarre labeling laws that have uh, vexed our people. Yes, it may be troubling to learn that civilization has reached a point where things like over-the-counter jock itch cream must warn customers not to put the product in their eyes, especially when there's no reason anyone should be applying jock itch cream anywhere near their eyes. Heck, Athlete's foot cream is required to direct its users to, quote, pay special attention to spaces between the toes when applying it. And while it's hard to imagine that a person could know they need to buy the cream, but be totally lost in figuring out where to put it to stop the burning, here we are, America. If there's any glimmer of hope in all this, it's that these rules have largely been put into place because of unscrupulous manufacturers and not raw human stupidity alone. What's even better is that the government sometimes chooses to make defendants out of misbranded products themselves, resulting in some of the greatest case names in American jurisprudence. Take, for example, the 1964 case of United States versus 2,000 plastic tubular cases, more or less, each containing two toothbrushes. There, the government successfully sought the forfeiture of roughly 2,000 toothbrushes that the seller had dubbed the, quote, conqueror, and that he promised would eradicate, quote, trench mouth. The toothbrush seller, who called himself a medical dental researchist, advertised his brushes as a, quote, must for engaged couples as the best aid for prevention of cancer, heart disease, and defective birth of their offspring. Although it sounded like one hell of a toothbrush, it was, in reality, just a toothbrush. The government prevailed, and the 2,000 toothbrushes were condemned. Well, I'm so glad that those toothbrushes are off the streets and can cause no more harm to the populace. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I guess the other question I was left with was when we find laws that we think are just on their face, absurd, should not be sending people to prison, should not be putting people's liberty or even, you know, in some areas, your, your right to vote should not be threatening those. What should we do as citizens, as engaged people, to combat these? How does the law get taken off the books? That's a great question. And and I'll tell you, the one is that um, it does begin with public opinion, because I think one of the reasons, and we're seeing it over time with people revisiting the 1994 crime bill and the merits of ratcheted up penalties for, for all sorts of crimes, 
And I'll tell you that it's that we, we tend to judge the success of our lawmakers on how many laws they get passed. I think that's part of the problem is, is you go into a primary season and the debate is, well, how many bills did you get passed when you were in Congress? And that may not be the best uh, metric for whether somebody's been successful. To add to that, that we tend to say we don't like people to be soft on crime. Well, what exactly does that mean? Because hard on crime has probably resulted in lots of the stuff in my book. Nobody wins any political victories by saying I repealed all kinds of statutes. And they certainly are not going to win any political victories by saying I made it legal to import a pregnant polar bear. But at the end of the day, I think that as a society, we need to start looking at when do we call for the criminal prosecution of people and when do we uh, celebrate a lawmaker for making the law more understandable and um, more forgiving for sort of incidental transgressions. So Congress needs to include intent requirements in any new crimes that it creates. And it really should go through and look at these accidental delegations of criminal authority to folks who probably aren't intending to create as many crimes as they have. And in fact, your dedication at the beginning of the book is this book is dedicated to the United States Congress. You guys are hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and by the end of the book, you really feel kind of the sting of that of that dedication because, wow. But one of the things that I admit, I, as a, as a non-lawyer, as an American citizen, didn't totally understand was that, you know, you have this idea of Congress is out there passing federal laws and affirmatively doing so. But what you teach people in this book is it's, it's not quite like that. It's not always Congress doing the passage of these laws. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between Congress passing a law and these regulations that end up becoming federal crimes and how that happens? Yeah, not only is it not always Congress passing the laws, it's not even usually Congress that's passing the laws because, you know, Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution says that Congress and Congress alone is supposed to make the laws. But they said, look, we're busy and we've got other stuff to do. So we're going to bring in executive branch agencies to make detailed you know, parts of the rules. Well, what ended up happening is these regulators sort of moved to a place where they were functionally passing the substantive law uh, in America and Congress was passing broad sweeping enabling uh, statutes. The problem with that is that they attached criminal penalties to lots of violations of those regulations and the regulators probably weren't thinking that every rule that they passed would then become a crime. But a good example is Congress said, hey, look, uh, it's a federal crime to do anything that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act uh, regulates. Okay, that's fine. If you, if you breach the bounds of a migratory bird regulation, uh, that's a crime. And all, most of us, we would immediately say, of course, if you go harm a migratory bird, that's a problem and should be prosecuted because they're worthy of protection and otherwise they might go extinct. The problem is that there are lots of Migratory Bird Act treaty regulations that are sort of uh, silly. And so, for example, falconers in this country, they can train birds to be, you know, uh, falconry birds. At the same time, they're not allowed to let their falconry birds appear in movies if they're not about falconry. Problem with that is 
under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and the regulation, it's now a federal crime for one of those falconers to let their falcon appear in a movie that's not about falconry. And so I don't think that's the kind of thing that a person should lose their liberty for. Maybe they should be fined. Maybe they should lose their bird. I don't know. But at the end of the day, this is not what the criminal sanction should be used for. And quite frankly, I don't think that the Secretary of the Interior is trying to put people in prison for it. But here we are. And I do have to say, you know, you can see how it started. You can see things that are persuasive about the argument. Well, you know, a congressperson, you know, maybe they were just a very successful car dealer and perhaps they should not be in charge of writing laws restricting people's health care choices if they're not a doctor. Maybe we should get subject matter experts in here. But how do you think we should be attempting to balance those interests, making sure that people who know what they're talking about are the ones involved in developing laws, but also not putting regulators in a place where something that they just thought, well, this is good sense and should be done, winds up being a crime that could put someone behind bars for up to a year. I think the place to begin is create a rule that says if something's going to be criminally punished, it must be specifically said so by Congress. Those are the kinds of things that regulators can't accidentally create. So these broad statutes that say violation of any regulation issued pursuant to this chapter, that can't exist as a crime. And, and if you just begin with that principle and say, Congress, if something can be criminally prosecuted under federal law, you must have said so explicitly. I think you eliminate my ability to do what I do every day at Crime a Day, and you eliminate my ability <laughs> to write another book. <laughs> but the issue is that Congress is probably not going to do that because they're not going to win any political victories, but it would be a good solution. Then there's an additional solution, which is this notion of sunsetting laws. You know, as I mentioned, you're not going to win political points by uh, repealing laws, but if the laws expire on their own accord without being re-upped, you might end up in a situation where we do pare back the code just by virtue of the fact that nobody has to do anything. They actually have to take action to renew the law. And they'll only do that if it is popular, and they will only do that if it makes sense to do so. Well, we're getting towards the end of our time together, but I think that where I'd like to leave off is, do you think that you have an absolute favorite, bizarre, obscure law that you've uncovered so I'm admittedly biased towards cheese crimes. I have always been biased towards cheese crimes. I don't even really like cheese, but the fact that you can commit probably uh, several hundred or thousand different criminal violations with cheese alone, that really uh, tickles my funny bone. And so the one I come down to is that regulators felt the need to make sure that nobody sells grated cream cheese because the sheer impossibility of making grated cream cheese is one detail that I think is funny. But also, I think it's hilarious that we would want to punish somebody who grates cream cheese, because after all, I think grating the cream cheese and then cleaning the cheese grater after you do so, that's a criminal penalty enough. And uh, I, I don't think that person needs to find their way in the judicial system. But yeah, grated cream cheese is, is really up there. Wow. I admit I I had no idea that that was a crime I could commit. So listeners, <laughs> as you're out there preparing for your 4th of July barbecues, making casseroles, my fellow Midwesterners, make sure that you are not 
grating cream cheese. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library, and thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed our program, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcast listening service.